Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, the 13th of August, 2021. Um, Friday, the 13th, of course. Uh, somewhat chilling, at least presented by Hollywood and poets and novelists. One could argue that the whole history of African-Americans in the United States of America is one long Friday the 13th. Um, a few months ago, we had um, two wonderful thinkers and writers and poets, Hilary Beard and Tim Madigan on the show. Um, talking about their new book, The Burning. It's um, uh, a, a history for actually for children of uh, the Tulsa race massacre of 2021. Um, Lit Hub, as they will, put it in their headline, Hillary Beard on racism's failure of imagination, as if uh, people who are against racism have imagination. Maybe we can come to that later in this discussion. What's interesting about the Tulsa race massacre of 2021, which arguably is the worst race massacre in American history, or those will see it's very arguable, um, is that most people didn't know about it until, um, uh, as the, the Los Angeles put it, the, the, the television series Watchmen revived it, as the LA Times headline suggests, the history of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre was nearly lost, lost to history, lost to our imagination, lost to our knowledge, like some uh, pre-Socratic um, text in, in, in antiquity. Um, Watchmen was the thing that revived Tulsa. And I, my guess would be that most of you, including myself, are not familiar with other massacres that took place around the time of Tulsa. For example, the Elaine Massacre in Arkansas of 1919, um, a massacre that some people argue uh, was the worst massacre in terms of loss of life of African Americans um, in American history. Uh, it all, of course, came about, as always with these massacres, with some uh, fake news about Negroes, as, as, as they were then known by white people, planning to kill all whites. Fortunately, uh, not everyone has forgotten the Elaine Massacre. My author, uh, my, my guest today on the show is the, the poet and writer, uh, J. Chester Johnson. He had a book out last year. It's out in paperback now called Damaged Heritage, the Elaine, the, the Elaine Race Massacre and a Story of Reconciliation. He's my guest on the show today. Um, uh, Chester, I, I don't want to... I don't want to be crass and start comparing whether or not the Tulsa massacre was worse than the Elaine, um, the Elaine race massacre, but they took place two years apart, and I assume they were part of the same uh, post-First World, World War socioeconomic and unrest post-Civil War in American history. Would that be fair? Place... Place uh, the uh, the Elaine race massacre in the context of early 20th, 20th century American history for me, please. Well, um, 
The Elaine Race Massacre occurred in the, the fall of, early fall of 1919. Um, the veterans, uh, African-American veterans, they had fought in um, World War I and uh, came back with an expectation of being treated. Some of them were actually heroes and, and decorated in Europe. Um, and they came back with an, un, uh, an expectation that their lives would be better and, and more respected and that their economic opportunities would be greater um, bef um, in comparison to what they had experienced. They came back before. from Europe, of course, from, from the, came from back the front. And in, right, after World War I. Um, and then white America rose up in Moss um, to say that is not going to happen. And so, and um, soon thereafter, there were race um, confrontations all over this country, uh, running from Arizona to, to New York City um, and all spots in between. In fact, the national and international journalists at the time called it um, uh, America's race war. And um, while Tulsa occurred in 21, um, Elaine fit right within what uh, James Weldon Johnson had called at that time the um, red summer of 1919 with sort of a double entendre meaning. Um, uh, and... Uh, 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 Excuse me. Um, Chester, for those, not everyone are as historically literate as you. Um, the South that these African-American soldiers left to go to the front um, was a Jim Crow South, wasn't it? Is that fair? Yes, to describe this South and then uh, explain how contradictory... Uh, their role in the First World War was with the world that they'd left? Well, um, the, the latter part is a little bit difficult to, to characterize because of the dramatic differences that existed between um, the sharecropper world that these, that these individuals, the individuals that were part of the massacre, that many of whom were, were killed, um, after the um, Civil War, um, and I won't go through all the machinations, but, uh, but effectively sharecropping um, substituted for slavery. Uh, people were put in the position of, of um, working uh, plots of, of, of land primarily in the area that we're talking about, which is in southeast Arkansas, right across the river from the state of Mississippi, along the Mississippi River Delta, in very rich alluvian um, soil that accommodated and, and provided substantial economic returns with, uh, in cotton production. In, in and so what's the difference between sharecropping and slavery? Well, the difference being, I think slavery is pretty obvious on its on its face. Sharecropping meant that you would share in, you would uh, 
produce, you would seed, you would harvest, you would cultivate as a sharecropper, as a as a effectively a farmer, as though it were your land, but you would share the um, the the price, you would share the economic return. Um, your your life was effectively determined by the white planner under which you or under whom you you share cropper with that individual but it was only a notch uh, up from slavery because what would happen is that they had commiss these various large plantations would have commissaries where the sharecropping family would come and and get their produce get their uh, their um, food and clothing and uh, instruments and that sort of thing and incur debt. And then at the end of the, the harvest period, then what re was received by the sharecropper would go against um, the outstanding balance. The problem was that you could not leave as a sharecropper, you couldn't leave that land unless the debt was completely liquidated. And that didn't happen. It was you were effectively tied to the land unless you escaped or otherwise. So it's essentially uh, slavery reinvented by a, um, uh, a kind of uh, nasty surrealism or absurdism where slavery still kind of existed. It just wasn't called that. It wasn't called that, but it was, but it effectively, and, um, but there were federal agents that sort of looked around to determine whether there were um, penury um, um, restrictions that had that went outside the, the range of acceptability and there were lots of uh, of events that happened in fact it, with respect to elaine uh the sharecroppers when they these veterans who came back and they started to, to work, they they realized that they were being treated unfairly by the white planters on a continuing basis. They knew it, but but they thought they would have been treated better when they got back. Um, and they had hired a um, these particular sharecroppers who were north of a lane, a place called Hoop Spur had hired a white attorney to represent them against the, and, and plead their case to the courts um, against the uh, several white planters. In addition to that, the, um, these sharecroppers de determined to set up a, a union. A union had already been set up among in Southeast Arkansas by another veteran, black veteran, named Robert Hill, who had set up the Progressive Farmers and Household Union for Southeast Arkansas. Well, these the hoop spur there would be a hoop spur lodge, which was um, part of this overall union that Robert Hill. So we have had. labor rights, we have land rights. I assume we also have voting rights uh, that, uh, that that much, uh, many of the people coming back from the front demanded the right to vote, which they had somehow been excluded from. Is that also fair? 
Chester. That's that that's fair. Although Arkansas was a little bit different and this than a number of other states that didn't actually lose the right to vote primarily as a result of a African-American attorney who was an extraordinary person, which we, actually plays a very important role mm. in the uh, in the Elaine race massacre. But there was ex expectation, of course, that these farmers would, um, the sharecroppers would vote the way that their white planners um, expected them to vote. So let, let's talk about this small town of Elaine, which now exists in historical notoriety uh here we have it on the map small place you you go back to it in 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 your book uh damaged heritage it's a very sad place now like much of these kind of towns what was elaine like in phillips county in arkansas in 1919 chester well actually it hasn't changed that much that was one of the most extraordinary things i mean it it has changed sociologically Clearly, but um, uh, but economically, it hasn't. I when I first visited the killing fields, I was astounded at how little had changed from 1919. But um, there has been a, a significant exodus of both white and um, mm. and black um, individuals from from Elaine. The population now is probably around 500. It got up. You know, over two thousand at, um, yeah. at its height, and um, uh, but it is a worn out place. It is depressing. It um, it's as though uh, a lot of people say it has been cursed since nineteen ninety. Well, not not surprising. So let's let's talk about what happened on September thirtieth, nineteen nineteen. Very briefly, you you cover it in more detail um, in the book. But for people who won't have the opportunity to read your book, which everybody should read, Damaged Heritage, Chester, what, what happened? Well, the evening of September the 30th, 1919, the sharecroppers and family members um, met in sort of the final organizational meeting uh, to establish their, their lodge of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union. They met in uh, Hoopspur Church, which was right off of Highway 44, um, State Highway, and um, about 11 o'clock. And there, it was well over 100 people in this um, in this church. And 11 o'clock, approximately 11 o'clock that night, um, Model T Ford uh, drove up, um, stopped at a bridge that went over Gobbin Slough which was right next to the, um, the Hoopspur Church and outstepped the uh, deputy sheriff of the county and, I, and an agent for the Missouri Pacific Railroad, which um, provided supplemental security services for local um, uh, police. And soon, almost immediately, um, gunfire broke out with, um, it's my conclusion that, um, that those two gentlemen, both of whom were white, fired into the, um, uh, the, the church. And unbeknownst to them, the union had hired guards to protect the proceedings that night. And the guards fired back at, um, 
at the deputy sheriff and the uh, Missouri Pacific Railroad official. The official Atkins was shot in the stomach and in the neck, and he he virtually immediately died. The um, the deputy sheriff was shot in the knee. He crawled up. There was a, tr a black trustee with them, um, um, who sort of did that, did various work for the um, sheriff, and he uh, he left unhurt. Um, but uh, the, when the deputy sheriff got back to the, the county uh, seat, which is Helena, he told that there was a black uprising, black insurrection occurring in Hoop Spur, and told the county, county sheriff, sheriff deputized a large number of, of white men, and almost immediately thereafter, they started very early in the morning and went to the settlement of Hoopspur, which was uh, just a series of shacks that the sharecroppers lived in. Um, and that morning, um, those posses, one coming from um, Helena and another coming from Elaine, which was a couple of miles south, of the Hoopspur settlement, and they started shooting African Americans on on the excuse. It was a, it was a, it was a it wasn't really a race riot. It was a, a race massacre. That's it started that it, uh, there was no riot about this. It, the term and it was a, it was it wasn't just over some incident. It was a political response, or it was a response to the the political demands of African-Americans who demanded equality under the law. Is that fair? Right. That's fair to say. Absolutely. And so the significance of this, I mean, this is a, 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 a very moving, troubling story in its own right, which you cover very well uh, in Damaged Heritage. But as you also note, uh, the legal element of this is really important because out of the Elaine Race Massacre of 1919, we had a series of... Um, Supreme Court cases, in particular Moore versus Dempsey, that changed the legal topology of race in America. So is that fair, uh, Chester? The extraordinarily important decision in Moore versus Dempsey. Um, after, uh, after the Civil War, um, there were several amendments to the Constitution that were meant to uh, liberate African-Americans, and one being the 14th Amendment, which is equal protection of the law and a due process. Um, however, in another case, the um, U.S. against um, versus Cruikshank, which was involved with a Louisiana event, um, the Supreme Court effectively determined that only that states had the right to determine what the civil rights were for the um, the individuals who lived within those states and that the uh, equal protection of the law did not apply to individuals against individuals and that meant that um, that in that persons who had thought that they could use the equal, equal protection of the law were 
highly disappointed. And from 1876 until 1923, that prevailing um, position that um, that states determine the civil rights of individuals playing right into the Jim Crow and Jim Crow working in conjunction with the Cruikshank decision led to effectively only continuation of, of slavery in a very important way. And then in uh, this case, Moore versus Dempsey, which I won't go through all of it, but Moore versus Dempsey made it to the Supreme Court. Um, especially Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, but others on the court as well, including Taft, who was a, a relatively recent appointee. He was of, the head of the Supreme Court at the yeah, time. he was Taft. Chief Justice. Chief and, Justice. Right. And in a case um, determined six to two um, in favor of the sharecroppers who had been found guilty of murder, um, and notwithstanding the fact that, um, you know, there were only five, actually, and two of those five whites who died probably were killed by friendly fire. Um, but there were at least a hundred, if not more, many hundreds of, of African-Americans who died. Anyway, the, this, the, um, this case regarding six called Morver, uh, the more six, um, with the brief that was prepared by this individual that I mentioned earlier, black um, African-American lawyer named Scipio Africanus Jones. Who you write about in some detail in the book. Right, exactly. And he, he anyway, he wrote the brief that Holmes relied on, who wrote, and Holmes basically yeah. said the federal when these events happen and there is this grotesque and the abs uh, an absence of legitimate um, uh, legal protection, uh, the, the federal government has a, uh, or the federal courts have an obligation to step in. And that was the first step, the first legal step that led to equal protection under the law, which- So, but so more versus Dempsey. So whilst this was, um a terrible tragedy, um, at least uh, some good came out of it in legal terms. Now, your book, uh, Damaged Heritage, is not only a historical reenactment and analysis of this terrible, uh, terrible event, this tragic event, this crime in American history, but it's also a very personal story. Uh, Chester, I know you're, you live in... Um, you live in uh, New York City at the moment, or you've lived there for many years, but you are from Arkansas, and um, the thing that drives your narrative is your own family's association with this riot. Uh, I, I know that your grandfather, you believe, was a prominent, uh, he was part of the KKK and may have even been involved in the riot itself. Tell me about your grandfather and you're coming to terms with this terrible truth about your own family. Well, I really haven't fully come to terms with it um, even yet. My, my father died when I was one and my mother didn't do well 
and I lived with my maternal grandparents. And you loved your father, your grandfather. You even have a photo of him behind you. Perhaps you might show show us. This is a picture of. Let me see. Can I get it up here? Um, yeah. Of my my second birthday party, which were which was held at my maternal grandparents' home, and I'm standing on. Let me see if I'm getting this. Yeah, for people just listening, you're missing out. You need to watch this. But here we have a, a picture of a two-year-old blonde boy uh, and an older gentleman with a uh, white-haired gentleman with a, a cigarette in his mouth. So tell me about your grandfather, um, Chester, um, and, and, and what the writing of this book, how it helped you make sense of, of your own family's racism. Well, thank you for asking that. Um, my grandfather was was one of the kindest, and he was certainly one of the nicest people that I knew. He he was always attentive to me, and and effectively he he sort of saved me because um, I, as a grandson, I and I didn't really have a place to go uh, when my father died and my mother wasn't doing particularly well and so they took us they took me in and and I became in according to family folklore I became his 24-hour retirement project because he had retired from the Missouri Pacific Railroad Missouri Pacific Railroad was in effect up to its eyeballs in this massacre in all kinds of different ways um, and um, I had my own mother uh, when I was 13, and we had coalesced as my brother and my mother and myself coalesced in a small town, and uh, again in southeast Arkansas, about one county away from from uh, Phillips County, where the massacre occurred. Um, she had told me about this event called she called it a well-known race riot, and she told me that. Um, my grandfather Lonnie Birch had participated in it, and she described the typography of the um, of this place, and that many African Americans had died, and that sort of thing. But I didn't really have anything to hang my uh, that information on. And then 2008, I was asked by the Episcopal Church and um, branch of the American branch of the Church of England. Uh, to write the litany of offense and apology for the day of repentance. For your, your day job, I don't know if it's fair to put it in those terms, but your day job is a poet, Chester, right? You're a very distinguished yeah. poet yeah. as well as writer and teacher. Right. Um, but anyway, that's when I coalesced those two uh, after doing a lot of research and determining that, yes, there had been... Um, other around that time of 1919, there had been burnings of African Americans, there had been um, killings, lynchings, but they were generally one or two people, not a major event. And the only event that I, the only sort of major event that happened and it, um, was the Lane Rice Massacre. Was he, in your mind, was he just a typical white man who hated blacks, or was there something unusual about him in his commitment to racial hatred? No, I think it was, uh, bear in mind, he died uh, 
when I was uh, I was five, so I didn't get to know him much after that. But I do know from family discussions that he, you know, he was typical. I mean, that part, bear in mind, I grew up in a racist family. But is that, you said at the beginning that he, he was a nice man, obviously very nice to you and perhaps very. to his family, not very nice to others. Is that an excuse? How, how would you make sense of that for a man like that? Because he didn't need to join the KKK. He didn't need to dress up and perhaps even murder black people, did he? No, of course not. And, you know, I can't, I can't really um, excuse him for any of that. And um, the one element we haven't talked about, of course, is the relationship between Lonnie and, and a person named Sheila Walker, who, uh, was right. who, uh, who, whose photo is here. Um, and that's where the story becomes a little bit more optimistic because there is an element of reconciliation in your narrative in Damage Heritage of this uh, African-American woman, uh, Sheila Walker, in this photo that, uh, between you and uh, David Solomon. Um, tell me about uh, Sheila Walker and how she fits into the story of Lonnie and the massacre. Well, Sheila and I... Uh met in 2014 after I had been working on learning more and more about the, the massacre starting in 2008 when I wrote that litany. Um, and she had been coming at it from another perspective and that was her family's um, uh, as victims. No one died, but they were, they were, she had two great uncles who were shot up terribly um, one of whom was killed by or, or shot up by a Missouri Pacific Railroad uh, a, a co-worker of, of Lonnie's. Um, and she is and it was, she died back in March um, of this year. She was an extraordinary person and she, her views were uh, theologically so forgiving and caring and her view was and there was a symposium in two, September of 2014 where she and I and David Solomon and I, a couple of other people spoke and she, she said you know I have forgiven Lonnie more than Chester has and and she has she discussed her views of how she could forgive, forgive him, and her, her she had this mantra that um, people are born good, but bad circumstances make good people do bad things, and that way, and and she felt that because my affection, my views of Lonnie and how he had taken care of me, um, reflected a goodness on his part. And um, and before she died, one of her great irritations, I mean, for years she was on me about the best part of you, Chester, doesn't reflect in your inability to forgive Lonnie. And I still haven't fully forgiven Lonnie. I mean, what, what I realized... It's easier how, for you, it's easier for her to forgive Lonnie than you, isn't it? 
It probably is, but um, I still think it was extraordinary for her to do what she Absolutely. did. Absolutely. I, I wish uh, I wish uh, she she hadn't died and we could have her on the show. Uh, Chester, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Carol Anderson. She's an old friend of mine. She's been on lots of shows with me. Uh, here we have her uh, on Voting in America in uh, 2020. Um she argues that the problem with America, and this is broadly in the context of, of your book and, and what you're talking about now, is that America hasn't, unlike Germany and its crimes un, uh, under the Nazis, Americans have not come to terms with their own history. Is there any anything uh, fair about what Carol says? Do, do Americans need to revisit their past in a much more critical way through books like yours, through Damaged Heritage, through understanding the Tulsa riots and the other terrible crimes that happened, uh, not only under slavery, but in post-slavery in Jim Crow America, and indeed, even since Jim Crow? Oh, my God, of course. I, you know, the, and it goes beyond coming to terms through, through books. It comes, it comes through... Um, an understanding of the inability of white folks to get beyond foisting this history and foisting the traditions, the what I call filial pietism, which is this excessive veneration of the past and tradition. Yeah, you, you take a wonderful quote from uh, Faulkner on that, uh, <laughs> from uh, idealizing the Civil War, that moment in the Civil War uh, just before Gettysburg when uh, the South might have been victorious. Right, exactly. And, uh, well, it, it, and as I said about Faulkner, he was sort of the the country's greatest filial pietist because he, he turned history into art in a way in which it made it current. But, but I would absolutely agree with the point that you or Carol was making on that because the thing is that we, I didn't, I didn't participate in the Elaine race massacre, but I inherited it. And I have an obligation either to address it. If I don't address it, and I mean in a personal way, and, and then what I have done is I have forced it forward for others to deal with this, with the race problem in the future. And what has happened over 400 years is there has been this continual foisting forward. We don't realize that actually we white folks the only way in which we can deal with this is to be forgiven by African-Americans. And the only way we get forgiven by that is to recognize, and we have built up this terrible patina of, uh, because over time we have become so insensitive to what we have done and we continue to do to African-Americans. Um, uh, but Chester, not everyone is as forgiving as Sheila uh, Sheila Walker. Her, her, her religiosity clearly made her very forgiving. We've had a number of shows with contemporary African-American writers and thinkers, people like Adam Sowa writes for The New Yorker, The Cruelty is the Point, which is a kind of critique of, um, of Trump, Trumpian racism. 
but there's not a lot of forgiving there, and it's understandable. Why should African Americans uh, be willing to forgive, like 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 uh, like uh, like Sheila uh, Sheila Walker? Well, I I'm not saying that blacks should forgive white folks uh, carte blanche without um, you know, white folks realizing what are are meeting certain threshold obligations and and one of those is clearly the acknowledgement of what has gone on in the past and this accumulation of damaged heritage which we carry we white folks carry from day to day year to year and generation to generation um, in addition to that we clearly cannot continue to rely upon this filiopietism for giving us, us an excuse for damaged heritage. And we have to, and finally, we have to embrace what I call the genuinely human, which is that deeper, more fundamental, instinctual capacity to understand, to forgive, well, to, not to forgive, to understand, to empathize, to reconcile, to love, to co-inhere, to step into those shoes of others and recognize what we have done. And in the absence of all of those factors, I do not think that Blacks should. Otherwise, we are entering in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have called cheap grace. And when we don't deserve cheap grace. We, we do believe and we do, we we do does we have the right to be forgiven but only on the basis of, of meeting that criteria that i just discussed and um in the absence of it and i don't know how many whites are prepared to do that i have yeah. tried to do it i tried to do it with sheila and sheila certainly and and i loved sheila walker and she loved me and our families loved each other and we developed this one-to-one -one relationship that was substantial and um, um but i don't think we have to be an exception it's a matter though of our recognition particularly on the white side recognizing mm. what we've done and what we haven't done and the and relying on the excuses of filiopietism in particular well your book um damaged heritage and D d damaged heritage is a, is a great antidote to filiopietism, as you put it. Um, Chester, you you went off, I think, to Harvard in the 60s. Yes. Uh, left Arkansas for good. So uh, clearly there are two sides to your life. You were very much involved in the civil rights struggles of the 1960s. We've had a number of shows about that. Uh, I I'm curious, your book came out last year in 2020. As the George Floyd uh, incidents uh, were happening, uh, as it became clear that he was murdered by the police and the consequent Black Lives Matter movement, has anything changed? Is anything changing from the 60s to Floyd to Black Lives Matter? Or are we just seeing history continually repeating itself? Are we really still stuck uh, back in Elaine, back in Tulsa? I think we're still stuck. Um... I think there's a reason to believe that we're that we did 
touch upon an inflection point. But you're right. I've been involved in civil rights for many, many decades. And every few years, we're, we hear that this is an inflection point. It's not an, this was not an inflection point. I do think that a lot more attention is being paid, and that's a good thing. But I still don't see among white folks the necessary changes of perspective and spirituality, if you will, that would lead to a... Isn't it worse, Chester? We've had Trump. We've had uh, a, a, a racism which is more now overt than covert. We had headlines yesterday about white Americans now being in the minority in America. Are you fearful that events like Elaine or, or Tulsa could become conflagrations in, uh, in, in an America of increasing inequality and racial mistrust and hatred? I do worry about that. And in fact, when I wrote this book, Damage Heritage, I interviewed a lot of people in, in Phillips County, site of the Elaine Massacre, and it, it repeatedly I was told by African Americans that this was that based upon their own history and, and what they knew back in 1919, that there were too many, there were a lot of similarities that, that caused our current environment to be dangerous for those very possibilities occurring. And I, I am concerned about that. But I'm also, I think that we're in a, we're, I think we're in a sort of a very ironic period. And that is, we are moving toward the um, elimination of racism in an age of hate. And that is a very curious involvement and in, in with all kinds of different uh, streams running into this nexus. Um, but I think that there's a lot going on in, in a movement to, rather than leaving it up to institutions, I think there are a lot of personal movements going on one-on-one -on -one dealing with individuals as opposed to expectation that either the government or the institutions in this country are going to solve the race problem. I do think that there is an increasing recognition that it depends on the individuals, both black and white, to, um, to reach out to each other. And, 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 and Well, I think that's the nice thing about your book, uh, Chester, Damaged Heritage, is it doesn't come up with a, a fully comprehensive solution to all this but it it does talk about your relationship with sheila walker your own deeply ambivalent relationship with your family particularly your grandfather uh, and it, it's 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 a now it's a non-fiction narrative but you are a poet and it has a poetic sensibility about it uh damaged heritage i think it's really a must read for anyone who cares about race relations and the history of the south in america you are in uh, Manhattan, very different from Elaine uh, and Arkansas, uh, Chester, in these strange times where uh, post-George Floyd, post-Black Lives Matter, post-COVID America, we still need to be reading. In addition to your book, new book, Damaged Heritage, what else should pe people be reading to make sense of the world and their role in it? Well, I have two books. Um, this is called On the Laps of Gods. And it is uh, a more detailed 
analysis of the Who's it by? Robert, Robert by Whitaker. Robert Whitaker. Robert Whitaker. And it was uh, published by Crown, which is, you know, part of Random House. Um, mm. And it's, um, it is a, a more detailed analysis than I gave. I mean, as you know, in my book, I spend a lot of time on the massacre, but I also spend time on my own memoirish approach to uh, extricating myself from the racist family and the racist region that I grew up with and the re reconciliation with Sheila. And those were the th three th uh, threads that ran through my book. This goes into a great deal more detail about- Okay, on the lap of gods and you have a second book? I do. It's called Blood at the Root by a person named Patrick Phillips. And it's a story of a pogrom that happened. It has certain similar characteristics. It happened in, in Georgia, um, where the county, the county run by whites, actually just eradicated, removed blacks from that county at the same time that the uh, large number of blacks were killed in this exodus. So, um, those well, J. Chester Johnson, uh, as I said, your new book, Damaged Heritage, I, I think is a, is a wonderful testament, personally, poetic, political, historical, must read. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. And I want to thank you for being so honest um, and thoughtful in this, this conversation, really memorable, particularly your stuff about um, the role of forgetting and the, um, and the need for... Uh, white America to face up, not to its collective crimes, but to the reality of American history. Keep well, keep writing, keep writing poetry and prose. J. Chester Johnson, a real honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. It's been an honor.